Hey everyone, Chat Cemetery is back. I'm your host, Deanna Chapman, and today I am joined by Brad C. Hodson to talk about the Salem's Lot remake, which is a thing, in case you didn't know. But Brad, before we dive into Salem's Lot, why don't you just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Uh, hi. Well, first off, thanks for having me on today. Uh, if there's anything I like talking about more than the works of Stephen King, I can't really think of it at the moment. Uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, I'm the administrator for the Horror Writers Association, and I'm also a novelist and screenwriter, mostly horror. And obviously, as anyone working in the genre will say, Stephen King was probably one of my biggest influences. So, so it's fun to be on here today. Sounds like you might be more qualified for this than I am, actually. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think you've. Uh, it seems like you're having to watch and listen to everything he's done and i do i do have some gaps <laughs> in my knowledge so to be fair i'm doing this to myself though so there is that but <laughs> you know salem's lot 2004 tv miniseries big names in this cast you certainly have people who have been around for a long time in this you have people who are definitely huge stars like rob lowe who I've come to learn is slightly problematic or very problematic, depending on how you look at it. But that seems to be how Hollywood goes these days. And unfortunately, I do have to watch things with problematic people in them or who have been involved in them for this podcast if I want to pretty much be a completionist, which that's what I do. But Brad, what was it about Salem's Lot that made you want to pick this one to discuss? Well, Salem's Lot's my probably my favorite book by King, and okay. that that's likely because it's one of the first ones I ever read. I, th I think you find that a lot, which whichever book hooked you the first <laughs> is the a lot of times the one that that people put up on a pedestal. But uh, but Salem's Lot really is a fantastic read, and I revisit it every few years, and I love the nineteen seventy eight uh, film with David Soule and yeah. James Mason. Uh, but I feel like that one's been kind of talked to death, and there's not really much more that can be said about it. That one was 79, I believe, right? Yes. Yeah, 79. That's right. And, uh, you know, fantastic film directed by uh, Toby Hooper, you mm -hmm. know, uh, as far as as far as a TV movie goes. I think it works really well. But again, there's not really much more that could be said about it. That's the one everybody talks about. The yes. 2004 one, though, while it did really well when it came out, just kind of disappeared after that. Um, and I think there's probably some reasons for it that I'm sure we'll get into, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so I, th I thought this would be a kind of a fun dive is to get to talk about an adaptation of Salem's Lot that a lot of people don't even know exists. Yeah. And I've been coming across things like that throughout this too. You know, there are four different Carrie movies and people are like, wait, what one are you watching? Are you watching the most recent one, I was like, no, no, no. There was also a 2002 one that nobody seems to know about, or very few people anyway. So I certainly know <laughs> what you mean when you say some people might not even know that some of these things exist, unless you're those of us who have done deep dives into Stephen King, whether or not we've finished everything just yet will, you know, remain to be seen. But I want to dive into the cast. I touched on it a little here, mentioning that Rob Lowe's in it, but you also have... Donald Sutherland. I mean, how can you not mention him? He has a very small role in comparison to what I thought he was going to have, given, you know, the fact that he's Donald Sutherland. You have Andre Brogger, Samantha Mathis, 
Robert Mamone, Rutger Hauer, Rutger Hauer, not really sure there, James Cromwell. Yeah, Rutger Hauer. Thank you. Yeah, it's a fantastic cast. It's really probably probably the best thing it has going for it is its cast. I mean, like you said, uh, Donald, Donald Sutherland alone brings this just kind of weird... He, he brings gravitas to the role, but then he plays it like such a a lunatic <laughs> that it, yeah. it, it's so different from anything you've seen him play before. And I wanted more of it because of that. It was something we hadn't seen from him necessarily. He's sort of more serious in a lot of his roles for the most part, I would say. And you get bits and pieces of his character, but you never really get a ton of him at once like you do with... Rob Lowe's Ben Mears, who obviously main character, so you're going to see more of him. But even with Matt Burke, it felt like there was a lot more of Matt Burke in this adaptation than the original. Yeah. Well, and especially the original combined so many characters and got rid of so many others. I actually always have to stop and try to work out in my head who was who (laughs) when I think of the original. Like, for instance, I think Ed Flanders in the original is playing a combination of Susan's dad and the doctor, if I remember correctly. But yeah, Matt, Matt got a lot more screen time, which is good because going back to the novel, and I think I think that's one thing they nailed in this, Matt is basically your Van Helsing. Mm-hmm. If this was, was Dracula, he's... And I, I kind of like that angle on it, that the English teacher becomes Van Helsing because he's the one who's most familiar with all these old myths and legends and the literature surrounding vampire lore it's you know uh, a shame for uh he's such a great character that he's stuck in a hospital bed while all this is going on but that works out pretty well i think by the end (laughs) it does and i'll let you know this right off the bat here for you and the listeners i wasn't a huge fan of this and i think my expectations were set so high because of who was in the cast and the fact that i didn't get necessarily everything I was hoping for out of the cast and sometimes the story, it felt like this was disappointing for me. And I don't know if that's because it's always going to be harder with remakes to kind of top that first version that they did. It's like I said, going back to Carrie, there are four Carrie movies, but no one will ever be Sissy Spacek in that role again. Right. A part of these too, I feel like you know, the books for these are so rooted in the 70s. And even though that predated me, reading it, you're able to kind of transport yourself into mm-hmm. that time. And a lot of that, I don't think, translates as well to the modern day. And so I think those original adaptations maybe just play better because of that. I mean, once you add, say, into Carrie, um, you know, you add uh, cell phones and social media or in the Salem slot, just the simple act of adding cell phones yeah. and the internet, for instance, like it, it changes it. Plus there's, you know, as much as people want to want to say, oh, uh, you know, I, I wish Stephen King would get out of politics and stick to writing. His works have always been political. I mean, Salem's lot, the novel is infused with this kind of Nixon era paranoia and distrust of authority and distrust of your neighbors. The government does come up a lot in a lot of his books. I mean, 
you look at his first one, Carrie, there's a huge government cover up, <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. he's not shying away from these things in his books. And I think the people who say that about him and, you know, I'm not a terribly political person. I have my views. I don't yell them at everyone on social media or the podcast or anything like that. But I do think that the people who are saying that to him either only have read his books in passing and maybe they've read certain ones that don't go as deep into, you know, things about the government, things about politics. But I feel like anyone who's done a deep dive would have to know he's been political his entire life. Yeah. Again, you know, even if you disagree with his politics, it's always been there in his work. And I, I think, like you said, I think it's either just a a passing read or even just watching the movies where for brevity's sake, they have to cut out a lot of that, that people don't realize it was there. Or it's just that if you're reading a book like Salem's Lot for the first time in 2020, and you aren't familiar with how how huge all those moments were politically in the 70s, you might just miss it. You might not even pick up on it. I've but it probably was been there. guilty of that before, just because, you know, I'm a 90s kid. Don't necessarily know exactly what was going on before that. I know broad strokes. You know, I did take history class. Was not my favorite subject. But yeah, I agree. It's something that can easily be glossed over if it's not what you're looking for out of King's writing. Right. And I'm sure I have too. I mean, it, it predated me. I was just always, I don't know, that the growing up, everybody in my house seemed to be stuck like 10 years behind in everything they were talking about. So <laughs> I think I, I probably heard way more about Nixon as a kid than I think most people did. <laughs> so. Yeah. So we have a solid cast that kind of disappoints. And so that leads me to want to talk about the story and like you said, they modernize it, which inherently changes the way certain things happen. And I want to start off by talking about the opening scene real quick, though, because I was trying to call back to the 1979 version, and it has a very different opening scene. The one for this one takes place in Detroit, I believe, is where he finds Father Callahan. And in the original adaptation, I swore they were like down in South America or something. Yeah, it's Mexico, which is a, okay. a little closer to the book. But yeah, both both are kind of big differences. I knew they were in a different country. I was just like, I don't remember which one. I was like, were they in like Colombia or something? But Mexico, thank you for reminding me. That's a little strange. I think it plays well in the original. But uh you know, in the book, there's this idea that Ben and Mark continue hunting the vampires yeah. and basically try to stay on the run, but that they still, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it all still takes place in Maine near Salem's Lot. And the idea that uh, uh, one of the vampires fled to Mexico <laughs> just seems kind of <laughs> strange. I mean, that's one of those things where like, if you if you think about it at all, you're like, well, did they take a bus? Like, what did they do? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. They get a plane ticket? Have you have you read the Dark Tower series? I have read all but the Wind Through the Keyhole now. Okay. So, you know when you get Father Callahan's story in um, Wolves of Kala? Yes. I feel like they were maybe inspired a little bit like by that, where he goes off and he's helping the homeless, and then he ends up, if I remember correctly in that, I think he gets shot and he wakes up 
in um, Thunderclap or, or Kala, one of those things. He he wakes up in Roland's world. Yeah. And I kind of felt like maybe they were, I remember when I first watched it, when it came on TNT in 2004, that's what I thought they were going to do. It was like, oh, this is going to be a Dark Tower knot. And of course, they go in a little bit of a different direction. But but it is kind of a weird, jarring opening, especially for, it's it seems like they they made a conscious decision to lean into the small town drama, the, the soap opera ness of the people living in Salem's lot in this. And I feel like in the book, that's a strength is you, you start with this soap opera drama, you know, everybody's lives and their, their tangles and their personal drama. And then the supernatural starts building from that. And I think it, it has a bigger wow factor once it comes in as a result, but by starting with this, you know, big chase and fall out a window and all this stuff, I feel like it kind of actually detracted from building the tension, Mm -hmm. which I think was the opposite of what they were going for. I think, Oh, you know, start with this. And then people are like, who are these guys? Why do they hate each other? Et cetera. But I don't think it worked that way. Maybe maybe for somebody who hadn't read the book beforehand, it might've played better, but yeah, just, it was kind of off-putting. Yeah, and as someone who had read the book and watched the 79 adaptation, I was like, wow, this is kind of a wild start to this. And you feel like parts of it almost never really live up to that initial action scene. Right. Yeah. It's it's like they spent uh, they spent a good amount of their budget on that stunt where they both go out the window. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. there are some things in this that did not look quite as good as I felt like they should have, especially given the difference between 79 and 2004. You know, that's a 25 year difference. So 25 years of new technology that they can apply. And some of it just did not look good, especially when, you know, you had the kid zombie floating around and you're like no that doesn't that's not doing it for me and in 79 it was a little more comical because looking back on it now you know i just watched that for the first time last year or towards the end of 2018 i want to say so i was looking at it through the lens of okay i know they're going to use practical effects i know some of them aren't going to look that great because it was 1979 the technology was very limited but in some ways i felt like that stuff played better than it did in this more updated version. And I think part of it just fell flat for me too, because of the narration. I wasn't really feeling the narration in this. How did you feel about that? Oh yeah. A little bit of it might've worked rewatching it over the weekend uh, to prep for this call. I hadn't seen it since it aired and his first line of narration is, um, Something like uh, the town of Salem's Lot didn't know it was dead or something like that. And I was like, oh, cool. And then it just keeps going and going and going. And none of it's from the book because <laughs> the book's not told in first person. Ben's not narrating the book. And so it was it was a strange choice all around. Like you'll see that in movies a lot where the book is in first person. And at least that makes sense. It's like, oh, okay. Well, they thought that the narration in the book really told this story. But I'm really not sure what the the reasoning was behind using it here because it doesn't really tell you anything about Salem's lot that you're not seeing as he talks. It's just kind of him pontificating on the nature of evil, uh, which we don't need because we're going to see the nature of evil. Yeah. Yeah. Again, maybe it was a budget thing where they didn't have 
more of the budget available to actually keep Rob Lowe on screen. So they were like, let's just have him do some voiceover stuff and we'll plop that in where we deem it necessary. And while I'm of the opinion that much of it was not necessary like you are, it was just something that kind of took you out of the miniseries while you were watching it in certain spots because it's not like it was just narration to start it off and that was it. It kept popping up throughout as well. Yeah, and that happens sometimes in in movies where they'll shoot it and then they go and screen it for a test audience or they screen it for a producer and for whatever reason they get feedback that's like, I'm not sure this is working. And so, you know, that feedback always comes after they've stopped shooting and the cast has gone on to work other things and they can't necessarily bring them back for reshoots. So sometimes the easy fix is to plug in some voiceover and hope it smooths it over. And I definitely felt that in here. In fact, I almost felt like the opening and the closing at the hospital were also tacked on that they weren't originally in the the thing. It just didn't feel, it didn't feel like a part of it. And there's a scene later I almost said spoiler alert, but I guess at this point we've given so much away. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> there's there's a scene later, you know, the whole thing is set up that uh, Ben kills Father Callahan because of what Father Callahan did in the town after drinking the master's blood. You know, he kills, kills Matt Burke and he does all this. But there's a scene after they kill the master, after Ben drives a stake through his heart, where Callahan is in the street and a bunch of vampires are surrounding him. And uh, he looks up and he sees that the Marston house is on fire and he screams like Ben Mears or something. But the way that the vampires are surrounding him, it felt to me like the original purpose of that scene is that they they were killing him now. Now that the master was gone and he was no longer the master's pet, that all these vampires had come to kill him. So I feel like all that that other stuff was probably tacked on at the last minute, which is why it's so jarring. Yeah. Also, the vampires towards the end there started looking more like zombies and i was like okay like when they go out in the street why are they why are all the vampires just slowly shuffling around (laughs) and especially after we've seen them move with lightning speed and feed on any person that gets in their way uh it's just kind of such a a ham-fisted way to keep them from to to rationalize why they're not attacking ben and mark so that ben and mark can get away right but you know to go back to the effects too i think the vampires all around so, you know, this being shot in 2004, for some weird reason, I played the original Resident Evil movie the other day okay. to throw into the background while I work. You know, apologies to people who love it. It's not a good movie. <laughs> uh, but I uh, haven't seen it, so you won't offend me at least. It's fun bad. I'll say that. I, I, I had a good time watching it. But uh, I, part of the problem was it is it was so just dated, like. All the like bad tropes that were being used in movies in 2002. But one thing that stuck out to me was how bad the special effects were. Because it was in that weird area, you know, we're post like Jurassic Park and all this and Terminator 2 where, where digital effects have started taking off, but they're not quite yet good enough to do all the things that they can do in movies today with them. Right. So there's this period where they wanted to use them for everything, but they look horrible. <laughs> and this was a, you know, big budget studio uh, movie. So I don't know what the budget was on the, the TNT film. I'm assuming it was much less. And so the digital effects all just look. Um, and so they have to do weird tricks like when the uh the kid vampires are climbing on the ceiling of the bus uh-huh and they do that thing where they're like 
dropping frames and making them move all herky jerky, uh, which just doesn't hold up. No. <laughs> like it's a that's a very dated effect. But the the other thing that happens with that is you know not only were the the effects in general bad, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And when it comes to horror, I think familiarity definitely breeds contempt. The more that you see the vampires, the less scary they are. And because of the limitations of the original, I think that's one of the reasons they work. You get these small moments that they have to build to. Also, like when Matt Burke uh, in the uh, original adaptation hears Mike upstairs after Mike's died, and he comes back and you just hear like, the rocking chairs, he's slowly walking down the hall and you're starting to get creeped out before he even gets in the room. Yeah. And then he gets in the room and it's just Mike with his eyes closed sitting in the rocking chair. And it's such a creepy image that's that was entirely born out of the necessity of, hey, we can't really do much effects wise. And so they had to get creative when, with how they shot it. Whereas in that same scene in the new one, he walks in and Mike is just standing there with an autopsy scar. And then he sees himself in the mirror and does this weird like CG backwards jump out the window and all this. And it's not so much the effects themselves that ruin it. It's the fact that because they can use them, they're not as creative in how they shoot the scene. And so it's not as creepy, you know? I totally agree. And to answer your question about the budget, it's estimated to be around $25 million, which is a decent-sized budget for a TV miniseries. But I would venture to say that a good chunk of that also went to Rob Lowe and Donald Sutherland, at least. Yeah, I think the cast and the fact that they built the Marston house. Um, that was a... Uh, I had watched some other video on YouTube about uh, this production. They shot it in Australia. Yeah. And they it was just a sheep field and they just built the Marston house in the sheep field. I have no idea what that costs. I don't know if that's cheap, expensive or what, but that was pretty impressive. <laughs> Absolutely. And I do want to say that they made the inside look a lot like the 79 version, whereas, you know, they didn't build an entire house. They put a facade in front of a different house for the 79 version, if I'm remembering correctly. And yeah. Those are things that are going to eat up a lot of your budget because, you know, building a house, either way you look at it, is not a cheap endeavor. Even if your budget is $25 million, you have to factor in how much did those CGI effects cost back then. Probably more than they do now. Maybe. I mean, you know, they've gotten a lot better now, at least. So the money might be a little more worth it these days. But like you said, they just weren't as creative in how they visually told certain aspects of this story. And I think maybe the reason people don't talk about this one as much is not because of the cast by any means, because we've said it a few times here, lots of big names, but I think it's just not as memorable. Yeah, overall, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't capture the same creepiness of the original and there's a certain, I don't know, like you go back and you watch the original uh, adaptation and definitely when you read the book, and even though there's all these bad things going on in Salem's Lot, there's there's kind of this feeling of, oh, well, I'd like to visit there. That's a place I'd like to at least go and drive through one day and get some coffee, mm -hmm. experience the, the, the nice parts of Salem's Lot. And uh, I didn't get that in this one at all. And part of that might be 
again, updating it to modern day, the, you know, the small town just doesn't exist the way that it used to. That's happened rapidly since the 80s. Whereas when the book was written and when the original adaptation existed, small towns were these little isolated enclaves that had their own culture and their own politics and all this. And that that doesn't exist in, I mean, even the pre-internet age, you know, get rid of the internet. That doesn't exist once Walmart is opening and McDonald's opening in every town, you know, freeways being built. Like by 2004, the small town just didn't exist the way that King wrote about it. And so there's no feeling of, I want to spend time in Salem's Lot, you know? Um, and I think that's, that takes, takes a little bit away from it. I mean, obviously we're talking about a horror story. You don't want to, you don't want a vacation in a town with a bunch of vampires, but <laughs> there is, there is kind of a coziness to the original adaptation before everything hits the fan that I think contrasts that well. Once everything does hit the fan, you're actually kind of, you're kind of sad about it. You don't want to see these horrible things happen to these people in this town get overrun. Maybe part of it is seeing so many vampires, not just the the bad effects, but you know that they had the budget for all these extras in the street and whatnot. That it just it felt a little less real by the time everything happened in the two thousand four. Uh, it it didn't feel like there's we've seen scenes of like twenty vampires out in the street, and they'll cut to the next day, and the sheriff and the deputy are talking about like having bad dreams the night before or something. It's like, did you guys not see all those vampires in the street last night? <laughs> I felt like this one also took a lot of turns that we didn't necessarily need and focused too much on things that didn't really have a whole lot to do with the core story of Salem's Lot. Like you have the doctor who is sleeping with his patient right yeah and that whole thing just drags on and on and on and you know ben is finally like here's the money go take care of your stupid problem you know he doesn't say it that way by any means but that's what it feels like as the viewer and yeah and that doesn't go anywhere no and i there's probably a lot they could do with it but it was it was a weird choice again you know the, the way the original combined characters those are three different storylines in the book in the book, you have the doctor, and then you have uh, Larry Crockett, the real estate guy, mm-hmm. is having an affair. And then you have this couple in a trailer park who are too young to have a baby, and they're abusing it. And they're they're all they're all three separate storylines, and meshing them all together, I don't really felt served a purpose. Yeah, and the Larry storyline in this turns into something different because instead the real estate guy has a daughter and who he may be molesting. Like I thought that was really an odd choice. <laughs> yeah. And then you get that whole dump scene at the end where all the vampire not all of the vampires, but a bunch of vampires are there and he comes and tries to be like, "Oh, I'll join you." And she's like, "No, you won't." <laughs> and it's just some of the dialogue in this I was like, this is so unnecessary. And that storyline kind of went nowhere as well. Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't really much of a point to that. I feel like there were a couple of more with that. They, they, I think we're trying to have all the characters. Oh, uh, Eva, who ran the boarding house. Yes. Her, her and Weasel and their, their weird little love affair that after he turns into a vampire and then she wants to be a vampire. I feel like all that actually detracted from the horror. And interesting enough, like all that has changed from the book. They they took the elements that were in the book and kind of remixed them and did their own thing, which which is cool. I don't 
I'm, I'm never one to think an adaptation needs to be 100% the book. Same. It's a different medium. You got to do your own thing. I just like it when they make sense. Yeah, exactly. It, it should make sense and it should add to what you're doing. And I felt like every time they did that in this, it detracted from it. The one I'm torn on is probably the biggest change is um, Ben's experience as a kid inside the Marston house. On one hand, it doesn't make a lot of sense logically because in the book, it's all, you know, the Marston house has already been abandoned for 20 years. Uh-huh. And so when these other kids dare him to go into it, it makes sense. That's the kind of thing that happens in small towns, like go into the local haunted house and bring something back. But in this, having Hubie Marston still alive, all the kids were like, hey, break into that guy's house. That's our dare. <laughs> like, it doesn't, it just didn't seem as realistic. On the flip side, they tell such a disturbing story when he gets in there that I think it it really sets up a lot of internal trauma for Ben. But again, being torn in the book, Ben's internal trauma is that his wife died in a car accident where Ben was driving. And they don't touch on that at all in the movie. The sheriff mentions it once when he's doing a background check on Ben, but that's it. And they don't, they don't deal with that at all. So I'm kind of torn. I think, I think that worked at least for this Ben Mears. Um, but I'm not sure that it necessarily worked better than what was in the source material. What do you think of that? I think from the horror perspective, that works really well to have this childhood trauma that sort of comes back and he has this interest in the town again, which causes some tension between him and Susan and Matt even a little a little less so with Matt. But for me, the thing about the flashbacks was that they were so hard to watch because of the stylistic difference. Yeah, yeah. And that was, again, another thing that was just very 2004, the throwing the orange filter on it. And and it was like very frantic. And I think that would have worked if they hadn't done all of those things. If they had just made it you know, these kids and everything's a little more frantic than what's going on in the present day. So you can distinguish it as a flashback. That works better for me than just changing the whole style of how the thing looks, because that is a little too jarring. And it didn't look all that great. Yeah. Yeah. Those were probably the worst looking parts of the whole thing. And then they also undercut it because later, you know, that's that's been Ben's trauma the whole time is that he thinks that that little boy or he knows that little boy was dying in the bathtub and he could have saved him. But he was so scared that when he kept hearing, help me, help me, he thought it was a ghost and he just kind of clammed up and went comatose. Um, and then Susan, after she's a vampire, is like, Ben, I did some research. There's no way that boy could have still been alive. And it just it kind of completely undercut all of his trauma, especially with her being dead already at that point. It wasn't even like a bonding moment between the two of them. I don't know. I don't know. There were just some weird choices throughout this whole thing. <laughs> yeah. I try to give some constructive criticism with the things I don't like as far as the adaptations and the books go, but I do want to at least touch on some of the things we enjoyed a little more about this adaptation, and the big one for me was Andre Brogger's role as Matt. Yes, he's not in it as much in the original adaptation from what I remember, but I think, like you said, the way they use his character makes sense for the way they've changed this story. Yeah, yeah. That probably was the best change. Mm-hmm. Not only is he a phenomenal actor and really serves to kind of 
you know, be the heart of the group. Like he's the linchpin that holds everyone together. I also love that he doesn't actually enjoy Ben's writing all that much either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And which is kind of an interesting uh, change that they did too is, you know, in the book, Ben is a novelist. And then in the series, um, he's uh, a journalist. And you have this whole story where his reporting has uncovered crimes that uh, American Marines committed in Afghanistan and that that's what he writes about. I think he does still write books, but it does seem like they lean more nonfiction than fictionalized novels. Right. And I kept waiting for that to play a bigger role because that's such a big change in his character. And they talk about it a lot. You know, there's the old man in Eva's boarding house who read the book and hates him because he called those Marines out. Yeah. And, you know, the kids bring it up when he's talking to Matt's class. And so I kept waiting for there to be something more to that. And that didn't really go anywhere either, which is maybe a thing. I don't know. There were a lot of this that it felt like it felt like there were earlier drafts of this that kept that went in uh, slightly different directions Mm -hmm. and that they didn't really excise all that when it went. Because it seems like if you were going to set up this whole thing with Afghanistan, that that would be Ben's trauma that we're dealing with. Yeah, it felt like that should have played a bigger role. Maybe we get some flashbacks of that, too, because we probably got, what, at least three flashbacks of him as a kid going into the house and what he experienced. But then you have this whole other trauma that gets mentioned largely in passing. And again, I think why I liked Matt's character so much was because we knew everything we needed to know about Matt. He felt like a more well-rounded character. It's like, okay, he's the high school English teacher now, but he was Ben's eighth grade English teacher. So he's moved up, you know, he got sort of that bump from middle school to high school as a teacher. And he takes a while to sort of understand and accept everything that's going on in Salem's Lot. But because he is an English teacher, like you said, he knows all of these stories. Yeah. And and there's also an interesting thing, making him um, actually dealing a little bit with him being a, uh, a black man and a gay man mm-hmm. in this small, insular... Um, kind of closed-minded New England town. Which gets revealed in a part of narration, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, which is kind of a shame. I would have liked yeah. to have seen that somehow. They play with it a little when, who is it, Mike comes back from the dead? Right, right. In that moment, it's not necessarily handled in the best way, how they reveal that information to you. Both yeah. in the narration and how Mike's just like, oh, don't you want to touch me? It's like, no, probably not. You're dead, first of all. And two, that's not how being gay works, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there's even this moment where Andre Brower is, I don't know if he's directed that way or if this is something they found in editing or it was his choice or what. But like, he kind of looks at this dead body standing in front of him like, ooh, for, for a second. It's just, it's such a weird, weird way to deal with it. Whereas... What they could have done, because this is all throughout the book, I mean, this is all throughout all of Stephen King's books, is, is you know, these small towns all operate on fear of the other, you know? And um, I thought originally that's what they were setting up, is like, oh, Matt's going to be, unfortunately, someone who's had to deal with this. 
but they don't they don't do anything with it until that that's weird <laughs> that weird scene with mike yeah i don't i don't think i've ever met a gay person who's also attracted to dead people i don't <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't think i have either and it felt like you know maybe they give us one scene of him out with someone whether or not it's in Salem's lot or he goes elsewhere. Cause I believe in the piece of narration, Ben mentions that he kind of goes out outside of Salem's lot. So even just like one quick scene with him out at a bar or something would have handled that much better than they did. Yeah. Or when he's trying to tell the sheriff about what happened with Mike, when Mike died and the sheriff shows up that maybe you get the impression that, People in town don't they don't believe him. They don't want to treat him as an equal. Something that could have been done with it instead of just setting up this really bizarre scene. <laughs> That's where you get the horror in this miniseries. Yeah. Yeah, that and then the weird thing where Larry Crockett is trying to feel up his daughter just out of the blue. I mean, we're I think an hour and a half into this thing or something. Yeah. By that point. And it's like, what? Where did that come from? Like, and you didn't need it either. Like, I felt like they were trying to justify why he was such a a jerk to Dud. And it's like, no, a, he's he would just be a jerk to a grown man flirting with his teenage daughter. Like, that's enough. Like, he doesn't need to be having an affair with his daughter. You know? Yeah, it's bizarre some of the choices they made. But overall, for the most part, I think Matt's character played off fairly well, minus those couple things that they could have done better. But as far as how his character impacted the actual story that was more important than whether or not he's a gay man, you know, it's something that is obviously important to his character and who he is as a person. But for the purpose of the story, it felt like something that was thrown in there and could have been handled better. Which is kind of a lot of this. Yeah. I I feel like they had a lot of good ideas that maybe, I don't know, maybe they were rushed in production or something. This feels like an early draft of something that could have been really good. Yeah, I was really disappointed that it wasn't better than I was hoping because there are other Stephen King adaptations that I've watched that don't necessarily look as good from a production standpoint, but I enjoyed them so much more because they either knew exactly how campy to be or they just got more of the story down better than this did. And, you know, I'd easily say that I enjoyed the 1979 one more than this 2004 one. Yeah. And just little anchors into the characters that you get in the original adaptation. Like, for instance, in the original adaptation, I think they do a great job of having Ben and Susan's romance. That not only do you feel a connection between the two of them, but Susan also kind of has her own life. And you start to like Susan as a character outside of her connection to Ben. Mm -hmm. Whereas in this one, Susan, Susan's and, and Ben's romance was virtually non-existent and you almost never saw or heard from Susan outside of how she related to Ben or she related to her ex-boyfriend. Basically this fails the Bechdel test. (laughs) In other words. (laughs) Yeah. To say the least. Yeah. You know, I don't know how much more I have to really touch on with this. Is there anything that you want to make note of before we go? Actually, 
I do have one thing. There was a nice little Cucho knot in this, and that's all I got for you guys as far as, you know, little yeah. things like that. Yeah, there's the Cujo nod. Uh, like I said, I felt like the Father Callahan framing device may have been kind of a nod to what happens in the Dark Tower. Yeah. Um, although not much of one. Uh, I feel like there might have been a, cu- a couple of other Easter eggs in this. But yeah, overall, I would say anyone who's a king completionist might enjoy this. Um, anyone who is more into kind of high higher fantasy vampires you're not necessarily looking for just the horror might enjoy all the the scenes with vampires crawling around on walls and things it it, it doesn't hit the home run it could have <laughs> I'll, no. I'll, I'll say that oh you know one and one last thing too is um uh, that we didn't really talk about is i actually did enjoy rutger hauer i thought Rutger Hauer as the master was a lot of fun, but I felt like seeing the master so much actually took away from him. Yeah, we do see him a lot more in this. And that initial introduction to him is just kind of like, okay, he's here. You know, there's Kurt Barlow. And because of how Donald Sutherland played Straker, it felt like maybe they should have waited and done something along the lines of the original adaptation with the Kurt Barlow reveal. And I read that in Rob Lowe's book, he mentioned that when they had that sort of conversation between the two of them while he's in the coffin, he just started making up stuff and didn't actually know his lines. And I was like, that is wild, but also might explain a lot about this adaptation. Yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense because that that whole scene where he talks to Dud at the at the dump, uh-huh. which is the first time we we see him, uh, also just felt weird and extraneous. Like it, it definitely felt like the natural introduction for him, much like in the seventy nine, would have been uh, at Mark's mom's house when he flies through the window. That if that was the first time we saw him, he would have been this incredibly creepy and powerful presence. But because the first time we saw him, he's just hanging out at the dump, like (laughs) kind of detracts from from that a bit. Yeah, this one did a lot of weird things. But as far as ratings go, I don't have the original rated in Letterboxd because I think I started using it more shortly after that and did not realize that they had miniseries in Letterboxd, but I ended up giving this a one and a half out of five. Yeah, I might go as high as two, but I'm pretty much in line with you. <laughs> like, and, and I just do that because I have a soft spot for bad movies, I think. But <laughs> Oh, I mean, as someone who is watching many of them for this podcast, I can understand that. <laughs> oh, I bet. That's that's kind of the fun thing with King is his adaptations run the gamut from being hilariously bad to being intentionally campy to being incredibly good movies. You know, everything in between, a few things that are just unwatchable, but but for the most part, even the bad ones are usually pretty fun. This had some moments, but but it was kind of a slog to get get through watching it again. There were points where I was really tempted to fast forward it if I wasn't rewatching <laughs> it to to talk about it. I kept picking up the remote and being like, no, 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 no. I need to watch this whole thing. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, we should also mention that there was a return to Salem's Lot, which was a sequel to the original adaptation. And I did not like that one 
at all either. I was like, we did not need this. And then I see on Letterboxd that some people gave it like a four out of five. I was like, wow, I think this might be one of my least favorite things. It's definitely like my lowest ranked Stephen King adaptation. And I think it's just because I was like, there is no point. It's so bizarre. I haven't seen it in ages, but I might go back and rewatch it now just out of morbid curiosity. But I remember none of the characters had anything to do with the original and that it's all like the vampires are all just like living on cow's blood and then just randomly decide like, hey, we're going to go back to eating people. And uh, and that, that that's where the the main character has to step in and stop things. But I remember it being just like cheap and cheesy and. I, I don't know. Now that I'm talking about it, I, I'm, I'm going to end up watching. It. <laughs> <laughs> My sincerest apologies. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably, I, I, I would agree with you just from what I remember, though. That's definitely got to be on the low end of adaptations. There were, there are some others that I don't care much for. I thought the, the recent Dark Tower, which I went into totally expecting them to change things and to kind of do their own thing. And so I was looking forward to that. And man, that thing fell on its face. That's what I heard. I was like, oh, maybe I should watch it closer to when it came out. And then I was like, seeing what my friends were saying about it. And I was like, I'm not going to put myself through that twice. I'm just going to wait until I have to watch it for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, probably, probably a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, Brad, I think that wraps things up. Thank you so much for coming on to talk about the 2004 remake of Salem's Lot. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. And it kind of feels like we might get another one at some point. I don't know. I'm kind of a little worried with all of these Stephen King remakes that are popping up because I don't know how many more we need. <laughs> yeah, they announced one. Uh, Gary Doberman is writing and directing. I think he did the I think he did the last Annabelle. James Wan is producing it. Oh, yes, yes. I vaguely remember this news. There's so much of it. It's hard to keep track. Yeah. And, you know, the book is so dense, which is why it ended up being a miniseries both times that they tried to do it before. So I'm not sure how you even do it as a single feature. With the James Wan connection, I'm kind of hoping they just set it in the 70s. Yeah. I think that would work a lot better. But, yeah, who knows at this point. So having watched everything of his up through 2004 now, so far, what's your favorite? Oh, man, that's tough. Because like you said, it runs the gamut. You have the Oscar worthy movies in things like The Green Mile and Shawshank Redemption, which are definitely two of my favorites. I still love The Shining, even though technically it's not a good Stephen King adaptation. Yeah. But it's a really good horror movie. Yeah. Yeah. It captures the feel of the book so well, even if it the characters are paper thin and, and it drops the all the the headier themes of the book like it's still you can't watch that movie and not feel like you're having a nightmare yeah so i think one of those would probably be my number one christine is also one that i enjoyed a lot and it's tough because like you said even some of the bad ones are really fun yeah <laughs> yeah i'm a i'm a sucker for maximum overdrive as awful as that is <laughs> I can watch that over and over. That seems to be a common one that people love, but they know it's bad. Yeah. Yeah. There's just some, there's just an insanity behind that movie. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, it's been great chatting with you, Brad. I hope you will be back on. I know we were discussing beforehand, you know, everything's up in the air with getting a bunch of new people on all at once. So yeah. I'm sure we will at least talk again on Twitter about various 
Stephen King things. Oh, definitely. I'm looking forward to it. I had a blast chatting about this. All right. That does it for this episode of Chat Cemetery. You can support the podcast on Patreon for a dollar a month. You'll get a thank you on the show for $2 a month. I will send you a Chat Cemetery sticker. And if you want to follow us on social media, you can do so at Chat Cemetery on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You could also rate and review the show. That's a huge help. And as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Bye.